Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Now for another in a series of back-to-back Bible Geeks with your host, Robert M. Price, the Bible Geek himself. Got an awful lot of uh, backed-up uh, questions, so I'm trying to get through them with, uh, you know, so you won't uh, have to wait years before yours is addressed. But once again, I would like to uh, remind you that Mythicist Milwaukee's Myth Information Conference Number 4 is coming up on Saturday, September 30th, going to be held at the Pabst Theater in Milwaukee, and you can get more information on uh, mythicistmilwaukee.com. And uh, there we'll have the, they'll have, I won't be there sadly, but uh, they'll have uh, the premiere of the Batman and Jesus movie. Uh, I'm in it doing or saying something. I, f- I forget what. Uh... Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, here's uh, Here's one from Billy in New York. He says, I heard about the... Greer heard point counterpoint forum. I'm not familiar with that. Do you think this is good dialogue here? Uh, yeah, I, I've not uh, not heard of that, much less heard it. I'm sorry to say. Also, I heard Amy Jill Levine say that she and the Jews do not think that Jesus Christ was the Messiah because he did not usher in the Messianic age. Uh, say, as Isaiah states, that the lion will lie down with the lamb. I await your response. Uh, yeah, that's right. That is a big problem. Since uh, any way you cut it, the various um, Jewish concepts of the uh, Messiah in the times of the New Testament entailed the uh, the the turning of the ages and the Messiah, the Anointed One, somehow being instrumental to that and uh, and and. Uh, involving a, a transformation of the world, uh, that didn't happen. Uh, so what do Christians say? Well, it did happen, but invisibly. That That is a classic um, butt-covering maneuver that uh, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Jehovah's Witnesses, and others have uh, employed when they set a deadline for the end of the world, and it passed, and they say, well, uh, it really did happen, just not quite in the way we thought. And uh, Jews have no reason to uh, accept that spin. Now, I do think that the uh, the uh, notion of Jesus as the Messiah, the King, the Son of God, as Christians define it, harks back to the sacred king mythology of of ancient Israel and the other countries around there. And uh, but but the the thing is that was apparently not the uh, view of things 
that most Jews held in New Testament times. I mean, a lot of these older mythemes were still around, as you can plainly see in the book of Revelation, where you have the seven-headed Leviathan and all that stuff. So some held it, but uh, that, uh, and I do think it was preserved in Christianity, but um, that uh, for that reason, it probably got excluded and marginalized from Judaism. And uh, so today, uh, the, uh, the, the definition of the Messiah in Judaism, uh, Jesus just doesn't fit it. Uh, now, many Jews uh, like Jesus as portrayed in the Gospels. Uh, it isn't a question of them thinking, oh, he's a bum. Uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of uh, willingness to accept Jesus as a Jewish prophet and reformer. Uh, a lot of Jews like the, the Jesus character. They just say, well, look, he's, you know, he fits a prophet. Um, category better than a messiah one uh, what you know what's the big deal um, even even his death as a um, saving event of some sort isn't out of the question in Judaism because they a long time ago back in New Testament times they had before they had the idea that the the death of righteous martyrs might avert divine wrath from the people uh, so I, I'm not that familiar with uh, uh, I, I guess I have not heard um, Jewish thinkers uh, make that connection with Jesus, but it wouldn't be out of the question. Uh, even the idea that Jesus was raised from the dead, there have been Jews that said, well, I guess he could have been. I mean, uh, in the Old Testament or the, the, the Tanakh, as they would say, there were resurrections of the dead, uh, could have could have been. But that wouldn't make him the Messiah any more than it made the people that uh, Elijah raised the Messiah. That wouldn't be enough. So, interesting. I'm uh, giving a little more thought to uh, doing a book I outlined a while ago um, to be called uh, Judaizing Jesus, uh, to uh, examine the current vogue of uh, saying, oh, yeah, yeah, the historical Jesus was a pious Jew, uh, and uh, uh, really, uh, th that should be the big ecumenical link between Jews and Christians. I have a sneaking hunch that's a theological construct, and uh, I might... Uh, write this book, but boy, that's going to take a lot of buying and reading of books to survey the uh, the discussion of that, so not not absolutely sure. Uh, this from Chris the Weasel Jansen. Um, hi, Dr. Price, two questions here. One, regarding Jesus cursing the fig tree, this used to really bother me when I was a Christian. The story just made no sense, and the apologist's lame explanations, one must always be in season for the Lord, etc., just made it worse. You know, my favorite... Uh, to uh, interrupt you, uh, is what F.F. Bruce says in uh, the New Testament documents, are they reliable, that this was an acted parable by Jesus. That gets the story off the hook. You mean to say it really happened, and this is why Jesus supernaturally blasted this tree? Come on. Anyway, um, okay, uh, back to Chris. However, I was reading a book of ancient symbology, and the author stated the fig tree was a common 
excuse me, common symbol for Rome, as common as, say, a bald eagle would be for the United States. This leads me to believe the story likely has a simple explanation that would likely relate to Rome's failure to embrace Christianity. Am I way off here? Um... I uh, am not familiar with uh, the idea of fig tree symbolism for Rome. It certainly was a, a symbol for Israel. And in fact, most scholars think that that is the point of the story. Not that, like, unlike F.F. Bruce, they don't think it actually happened. But what is the point of telling this story? Uh, I mean, you can say it's an acted parable if you mean it's a kind of dramatized parable. Not that it actually happened, but that the story is trying to get a point across, and that point would uh, really pretty obviously is uh, the fact that it's placed in the context of Jesus cleansing the temple. Uh, he, when he goes to the temple, it's the same thing as his coming up to the fig tree and uh, looking for the fruit, really the fruit of uh, repentance. And he doesn't find it, and there's going to be hell to pay, namely the destruction of the temple, because it's merely a, a robber's den. Uh, and uh, so that, that's, I mean, clearly that's what Mark is, is getting at. Now, he seems to have inherited inherited a story in which someone already found it embarrassing because it wasn't making that point since it circulated by itself, right? The, the mark and placement of the story is what makes it now symbolize the faithlessness of Israel. Well, were they? Well, of course, it's from a Christian standpoint that uh, they didn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. So, you know, that must be uh, a failure to repent. And uh, and they must have invited uh, the retribution on Jerusalem and the, the temple. You know, it's an old uh, Christian theme. Uh, well, but it didn't even mean that originally. Uh, so, uh, you notice that in Mark chapter 11, when the <laughs> disciples say, holy mackerel, did you see that tree wither? And Jesus says, well, actually, this is no big deal. If you have uh, faith, you can uh, tell a, this mountain to be uprooted and thrown into the sea. What, this was a lesson about faith? Uh, did Jesus have faith? Is that what they mean to say? It, it just seems it's like uh, Yoda in The Empire Strikes Back. Uh, it, it's obviously, uh, I mean, Jesus is, if you depict this happening, it kind of makes it look like Jesus is embarrassed and trying to change the subject fast. Well, really, it was uh, one of the tradents, as they say, tradition passers on, uh, who was trying to make uh, virtue of necessity, right? So what was the original point of the story? Well, uh, it was uh, just like these infancy gospel stories about Jesus the menace uh, that he just gets ticked off. How dare this tree disappoint the Son of God? Well, it's not going to disappoint anybody else. So in a fit of pique, Jesus destroys it. I mean, just like the stories where he kills a kid that um, bumps into him on the playground and stuff like that. 
uh, he kills a, a rabbi who's uh, presuming to teach him the alphabet when Jesus already knows it and uh, he's impatient. So zap. So it, it's just a kind of Christian folk tale uh, originally. And we see a couple of steps in trying to rehabilitate it. Uh, two, what do you think the real, quote-unquote, meaning of Matthew 16, 23, Jesus rebuking Peter as Satan, could be? It's another passage that sticks out as odd, even with Peter as a foil for Jesus. The condemnation of one of Jesus' inner circle as Satan himself seems excessive to make the point, and the get-behind-me bit Perhaps that was a familiar colloquialism that has been lost. It could be, I don't know, um, out of my sight, Satan. Obviously, it could simply mean shut up, jerk. But again, it just strikes me as a little bit of an odd phrase. Well, I see this as part of the Marcionite anti-12 uh, theme of the Gospel of Mark, where the disciples never understand anything, and the the redactor's point would seem to be, what, you're going to trust the, the kind of Christianity that claims these idiots as its uh, source and figurehead? Not me. I'm going with somebody uh, who the risen Jesus appeared to and taught, namely the Apostle Paul. Uh, there's another element of it, though. Uh, calling Peter Satan, I I think implies like it, it somehow. It, I realize this is subjective, but it, he doesn't exorcise Peter. I mean, it's not as if he thinks Peter is literally Satan possessed, uh, like um, Judas is, according to Luke and John. Right uh, at the at the Last Supper, Satan enters into him. We don't get that impression because there's no immediate uh, payoff in that sense. I get the impression where to understand that it's like Peter is unwittingly speaking the will of Satan, that uh, Jesus must die and Satan doesn't want him to do it because he doesn't want any sort of redemption accomplished. Uh, Peter's innocent of this. How would he know uh, the, the plans of God? So he's acting uh, quite understandably when he says, what, the Son of Man has to be sacrificed? No, no, Lord, not you. Uh, why wouldn't he think that? And Jesus says, as if, uh, going past Peter himself to, to Satan, who perhaps has suggested this to Pete. Uh, and he's saying, out of my sight, Satan, uh, the, the, because he understands what the, what the issue is. Peter does not. Uh, and so uh, he it's like Satan does. There's this interesting thing that in, uh, in um, Matthew and Mark, Matthew being based on Mark, Satan wants to uh, deflect and, and derail the plan of salvation. He doesn't want Jesus to go to the cross, but in Luke and John, he does, which is why he, he uh, invades Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So there's a, a big difference there. And, uh, and of course, uh, Jesus goes ahead uh, and with it anyway. I, I love an old mad TV 
skit from years ago before James Cameron made uh, Terminator 2, or I saw a few minutes of it again last night on TV, uh, where um, they called this uh, as if they were showing you Terminator 2, a new movie, and this Schwarzenegger lookalike, I don't know how they managed that, he zaps uh, into visibility in uh, in ancient Palestine, and I think he's there with the three kings from the east, and he manages to, to get the clothes off of one of them, uh, just like, you know, in the Terminator 1, um, uh, he, he'd steal some clothes and uh, so forth. Well, uh, he attaches himself to Jesus when Jesus grows up and starts preaching, and he's there to keep an eye on him, to make sure Jesus is, uh, is safe, right? Just like in the Terminator 2, he's there. The Terminator comes back in time to uh, uh, safeguard the kid that's going to grow up and be the uh, leader of the revolt against Skynet, etc., etc. And um, so uh, when uh, he's he's there watching out for Jesus, well, he's there at the Last Supper. And uh, Jesus says, one of you seated at the table with me will betray me. And um, uh, Judas says, is it I? And he says, thou hast said. Well, uh, the Terminator uh, springs up and guns Judas down with a machine gun. And uh, Jesus says, what are you doing? Uh, And the Terminator says, he was going to betray you. And he says, no, no, this has to happen. You don't understand. So Jesus on the spot raises Judas from the dead. Uh, and he says, okay, now where were we? <laughs> One of you will betray me. And uh, the Punisher opens up with the gun again. And <laughs> Judas is full of holes, lying in a pool of blood on the table. And uh, Jesus says, look, will you stop killing Judas? Uh, he, he's he got to betray me. The whole thing has to play out so I can save humanity. And he raises Judas <laughs> from the dead again. Then we switch over to the Via Dolorosa, the Way of Sorrows, where Jesus is carrying the cross, and the crowds uh, are uh, weeping, and uh, one little old lady in particular, and the Terminator with his his first century robes and his sunglasses and his gun uh, says to the uh, the old lady, don't worry, he'll be back. Uh, well, yeah, that's, uh, that's what's going on there. Uh, is it Satan's plan to avert the crucifixion or to cause it? Uh, and you can see both, uh, both motives there. So, um, let's see... Uh, This is not a question, but something I wanted to share with you from the great uh, Danish New Testament scholar and scholar of Buddhism. Now, that is no mean feat. Uh, uh, Christian Lintner. This guy's written, he he basically says that Christianity was uh, a westernized Buddhism started by Buddhist missionaries to the West, and we know there were such people at the right time. Uh, He's done a lot of work on this. It's it's an astonishing thing. I still don't know what to make of it, but it's amazing to me, this theory. He says, an old problem. Why did J.C. move from Nazareth to uh, Capernaum, or Capernaum, as we say? There are many speculations, as we all know. The right answer is to be found in the Sangha 
uh, the Sangha Bedavastu, uh, volume 1, page 55 and following, where it says that Buddhas left the town, Nagarat in the ablative, of Kaiplavastu. Uh, the compound is Kapilavastu Nagarat. So Nagarat becomes Nazareth, Nazareth. One and the same place becomes two different locations for one and the same person. Right, uh, the Kapila Vastu becomes Kafar Naam. Uh, Nagarat becomes uh, Nazareth. Uh, the spelling Kapar Naam is attested at least once. See Bauer's um, lexicon. Here it renders Kapila Puram, city of Kapila, and Puram and Nagaram are synonyms, uh, hence Kapar Naam. Uh, the number of Kapar Naam is, because the, all these things had number values in both Greek and in um Sanskrit. The number of Kapernaum is 763, which is also the number of Kapilapuram, 763. In SBV, now is that the same thing we just looked at? Yeah, uh, Sangha Bedavastu, uh, volume 1, page 5, there is a synagogue in Kapilavastu. The form is, uh, let's see, Samsthagare, uh, in the locative, synagogos, locative. Uh, here in Kapilavastu, folks do not believe in him, so he works miracles to convince them of his high status as Devaputras, son of God. No wonder, therefore, that uh, Kapharnaum is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Moreover, Josephus, because, of course, the Buddhist missionaries came after the uh, Old Testament was written. Moreover, Josephus seems to presuppose the Buddhist source in the um, the uh, the SBV, volume 1, page 9, uh, it has the form of Kapilavastu Nagare in the locative. This explains the variant in the New Testament, Nazara and Nazareth. Um, finally, Kapilavastu is said to be along the slope of the mountain, becoming along the Sea of, of Genesaret. Conclusion, to maintain that Kapilavastu was the, or Kafarnaum was the town of Jesus Christ, is the same as saying that he came from Kapilavastu. Sorry, Kafarnaum, same as Kapilavastu. I've listed more puns, uh, on Kapilavastu in my Geheimnisse. Uh, it's a, a book, uh, the Mysteries of Jesus. Uh, this means that any future debate on a historical Jesus may start out asking about the town of Jesus. I would be happy to debate this topic with any theologian willing to do just that. Yeah, boy, fascinating. Very fascinating. Uh, I don't quite know what to do with this uh, yet. Uh, it's... Uh, what does the psalmist say? It is too high, I cannot attain it. I have great respect and regard for Christian Lent earnest theories, but I don't know uh, Sanskrit, and it's uh, it's hard for an idiot like me to assimilate. 
Okay, yeah. Thank you, Christian. Uh, Count Lurkula says, Dear Herr Dr. Dr. Price, I've heard, I've heard the apologetic claim that the advent of Christianity had an ameliorating effect on the culture in which it rose, namely, of course, the Roman Empire. The church stopped the exposing of unwanted newborn infants, for example, and plague victims were dutifully cared for by their believing friends rather than being abandoned, as happened among the pagans. On the other hand, I've also read that these claims were made by Christians themselves, which could make them a bit suspect. It has also been noted that when the Roman Empire finally fell, the church was of little use in keeping the advanced Roman culture from collapsing along with it. Well, if you're dealing with barbarian hordes, some of whom did get converted to Aryan Christianity, that's, uh, you know, you can't necessarily make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Uh, to put the question in simple, maybe naive terms, did Christianity make the world a better place than it had been or not? A true believer might brush off the question and say, hey, Christianity made the empire Christian, what more do you want? Well, for instance, I might want better education, better health, more freedom to improve one's own prospects, and for people generally to treat each other well. How did Christianity score in this in its infancy, as well as perhaps later as it spread into new places? Well, um, the... Uh, there is uh, pretty significant evidence of the uh, ministrations of Christians to, to non-Christians in times of emergency. Excuse me. Um, Julian the Apostate, who hated Christianity and uh, th uh, tried to engineer a return to paganism, he was uh, Caesar, of course, he lamented that uh, the pagan priests in times of plague and such just headed for the hills. Uh, and he, he said, why can't they do like those blasted Christians do, taking care of our people as well as their own? So I don't think that is just Christian PR. Uh, and uh, I would recommend the book uh, The Rise of Christianity uh, by... Um, uh, Rodney Stark, it, it goes into some of the reasons Christianity did prosper in the beginning, uh, like the, like you mentioned, the, the, uh, Eventually stopping uh, in infant, uh, infanticide, exposure of infants and so on. Um, and much later, uh, in a somewhat different quarter, uh, Islam did the same thing. And uh, so it's, it does seem to me that uh, that the world is better because of it. I mean, you know, you can rack up good and bad things that different Christians have done. So it's it's dubious as to whether it really matters if you're talking about a monolithic um, movement. Uh, it's like characterizing Western or Eastern civilization as a whole. Is, is that really um, an entity? Uh, and uh, so I think you can easily point to good uh, stuff that plenty of Christians have done in a real spirit of uh, ministry to uh, 
to the down and out, the sick and perishing. Um, it, it has uh, somewhat to do with their beliefs, but uh, really it's a kind of humanism. And uh, I mean, like the, the way people have always interpreted Matthew 25 with the parable of the sheep and the goats, that if you uh, love Christ, you really should love humanity because in a sense, uh, every one of them is him. If you think you can serve Jesus in by going to church and praying and all that and, and have no concern for your fellow human beings, you're sadly deluded. And uh, that, you know, that's seems to me to be a pretty helpful insight, now, whether it's true or not. I mean, that's a real motivator for people to, uh, you know, if, if you want, to, I mean, if you claim to be any kind of Christian, presumably you, uh, you want to follow the teachings of Jesus. And, uh, and certainly, uh, I mean, Jesus obviously is depicted as healing and uh, exercising and feeding people and all that. That, that can hardly be uh, irrelevant to Christianity and many Christians have seen it that way, luckily. Uh, let's, I don't think there is any Christian theology that says you ought to kill unbelievers. I mean, I know the, uh, the uh, Crusades were wars of religion, though uh, some of those were defensive wars, but I don't think any of that really comes out of the teachings of Christianity. Okay, uh, Laura Walker asks, Midrash versus Pesher, which is the better term? Or how to use the same terms properly if they differ on shades of meaning? Uh, let's see, I'm thinking specifically about the late Second Temple works that rewrite or reimagine Torah history, Jubilees, Life of Adam and Eve, Temple Scroll, uh, Book of the Watchers, The Assumption of Moses, and whatever else falls into this category. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, I think that's the end of Laura's question. Um, there's more that could be part of that, but I think it's someone else's. At any rate, I guess it doesn't matter. We'll get to the other in a minute. Well, from what I have read... Uh, Midrash is uh, a name for non-literal exposition of, of the Jewish scripture, and it covers a bunch of uh, techniques. Uh, probably even allegory is considered a kind of Midrash. Um, if we differentiate it from Pesher, and sometimes they both are used more narrowly, here's the difference. Midrash tries to explain um, difficulties in, in specific scriptural passages by either embellishing the story or, uh, and one of my favorite uh, jokes about this kind of thing is, uh, though though it is only a joke, it's not meant seriously, uh, these two rabbis are debating whether there's any scriptural warrant for wearing the yarmulke, the skull cap, and one of them says, well, of course there is, look right here in, in Genesis, uh, and uh, points to a passage, and his colleague says, says, and Abraham went out from there. Well, what are you talking about? Where's any mention of the yarmulke in there? And the first rabbi says, would Abraham go out without his yarmulke? 
Well, uh, of course, uh, that, I mean, that, uh, though it's a joke, is kind of midrashic. You're, you're expanding the story to indicate, well, you know, certainly implied that he went out without his yarmulke. And there, but there, there's a whole lot of wholesale rewriting and expansion of biblical stories to try to, uh, solve problems and contradictions and all that really fascinating stuff it was said uh, that god said to the to the torah be fruitful and multiply so that the oral tradition can elaborate on it and extrapolate from it well pesher literally means solution uh, a puzzle solution and um what happens here is you assume there are hidden meanings in in scripture so the, the the surface meaning was quite relevant at one point like particular prophecies threatening the judgment of god on a particular city or country or something and that's over now well, what, is the scripture reduced to just being a museum relic? No, no, there are hidden messages. I mean, it's an inspired book, so why wouldn't it have levels of meaning? And so if we know how to find them, we can uh, we can solve a puzzle here and see a new meaning. I think the uh, the Bible code thing from some years ago w- might qualify as an example of this and uh but it's certain that the way matthew uses scriptural quotes uh he says that the uh the virginal conception of jesus is a fulfillment of isaiah 7:14 behold the the virgin or maiden or whatever shall conceive and bear a son and you shall call his name emmanuel matthew wasn't stupid he knew darn well what that was originally talking about uh, the imminent downfall of uh, the enemies of Israel or of Judah actually and their enemies to the north that this kid was is uh, is about to be born before he reaches so and so age your enemies who frighten you so badly will have been wiped off the map uh, Matthew knew that you'd have to know it it's very clear so when he says this is really about the conception of Jesus, he's saying, yeah, there was this this other hidden meaning, hidden until the event. And so in retrospect, you can see, oh, this was about Jesus, son of a gun. Or um, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Everybody that could read knew that was about the Exodus. I mean, it's absolutely explicit in Hosea chapter 11. There's no missing it. Uh, Matthew is no idiot. Uh, he's, uh, he, he says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's over. Uh, but what do you know? Uh, now that we have a story of Jesus as an infant being taken by his parents to Egypt and then coming back Bingo! Uh, that's the hidden meaning that no one could have anticipated. It's only in retrospect you can see, with the eye of faith, that it had this other meaning. The Dead Sea Scrolls do this, too. Matthew has often been slandered as just a con man who quoted uh, passages out of the Bible without regard to their context. Uh, uh, 
taking it as a safe bet that his readers wouldn't have access, easy access to the scriptures. They, they wouldn't have. You wouldn't add your own copy. And that he's just um, trying to make it look like, oh, yeah, this is what Isaiah and Hosea were trying to say. I, no, once once you read the Dead Sea Scrolls, and scholars know this today, uh, you realize, no, that's not what he was doing. It, it just didn't matter what the old literal interpretation meant. And that's what uh, Jesus says to Matthew, and I think it's Matthew thirteen fifty one through 52 somewhere. He says, he, it says to the disciples, have you understood these parables? And they say, ah, yes, Lord. And he says, well, then every scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a householder uh, who brings out of his store uh, treasures old and new. Well, that has to mean every scribe, right, a copyist, an interpreter of the scripture he knows what it meant, the old things, and he knows what the new treasures are, the new meanings revealed by the events. That's Pesher. Um, the uh, works of uh, Barbara Thiering rely heavily on that. She has Her working hypothesis is that the New Testament writers understood to interpret the Old Testament that way, well, maybe they wrote their works with built-in peshers so that you have to crack the code. We're very fascinating. So uh, I think that's the difference. It's amazing to me, though, in the works you describe, like the, the life of Adam and Eve, um, then you can throw in some Nag Hammadi texts, like On the Origin of the World, uh, The Secret Book of John, The Hypostasis of the Archons, The Testimony of Truth, all of which contain really wild versions of the Garden of Eden story that people felt, well, I guess that's Midrashic, uh, they're retelling the story and with a different spin. And uh, the Book of Jubilees, for instance, that... Um, that is like a new version of the Torah. It sort of updates it and elaborates it. Who would feel they had the right to do that, right? We think of the scripture text as being sacrosanct, but people felt they had the right to uh, do a new version. Fascinating. I think this, um, uh, th there's a book that throws a good bit of light on this, um, Rachel Elior's The Three Temples, and uh, she speaks of a schism between uh, the uh, the Pharisees and the Essenes, if you want to call them that, it gets messy, uh, where uh, the Pharisees were more rationalistic and down-to-earth, whereas the uh, Essenes were mystics and believed that prophecy continued and that the writing of scriptural books continued. Continued. Oh, what an interesting book. Hmm. Uh, let's see. Now, here's where I'm not sure who I'm reading. I guess ultimately it doesn't matter. Uh, what do you think of... Uh, now, is this Brent's... No, no, I think I'm still with... Uh, uh, with Laura here, as she speaks of intercanonical texts. Uh, what are your thoughts? Um, 
There are texts that are definitely Jewish, but in hindsight seem uncannily proto-Christian since Christians borrowed from them Daniel, Ethiopic or First Enoch, the Psalms of Solomon, the Qumran War Scroll, Slavonic Second Enoch. Yeah, well put. I think that is what happened. They, uh, they either drew upon those writings or the, the same sort of ideas and traditions that are also expressed there, but in Jewish, non-Christian terms, the Son of Man and all that. Then there are texts that are Jewish, but have intertextuality with contemporaneous Christian writings. Second Baruch, or the Apocalypse of Baruch, Second Esdras, Apocalypse of Ezra, Fourth Esdras, those are all three names of the same thing. Um, uh, then there are those that are nominally Christian but don't really reflect Christian theology or may only be Christian due to interpolations. Uh, the book of Revelation, the epistle of Jude, others. You might throw in the epistle of James there. Um, J.C. O'Neill argued that Hebrews originally had nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, that's speculative, but there's so little Jesus in these uh, these books that uh, you really got to wonder. And it has been argued for a long time that um, that these are really pre-Christian books. Um, and then there are Jewish texts that, however, have Christian additions to them: the Ascension of Isaiah. Uh, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, possibly the Epistle of Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah, uh, Shepherd of Hermas strikes me as a kind of Christianized hermetic text, as the title itself hints. Uh, Epistle of Barnabas, that... Uh, um, John Dominic Crossan, in my favorite book of his, The Cross That Spoke shows how Barnabas preserves a whole lot of the testimonia material, uh, Old Testament passages that we find percolating through Scripture and preserved in the Mishnah and looks like is reflected in the Gospel Passion narratives. There's a lot of it in Barnabas, implying that Early, um, widely, um, early Christians latched onto these themes and that they found their way into the Gospels. How, uh, Crossan doesn't see how seriously and extensively that tends toward dehistoricizing the passion narratives. I don't know. Uh, Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs, that's an interesting one because, uh, for centuries, we had, uh, I guess, Greek versions of it, and we figured there were translations. And there are a bunch of strikingly Christian-sounding passages in there. And uh, it's possible that these things just passed over into Christianity. I mean, that's still a live option. I think the thing that makes it likely that these are Christian rewrites, however, is that the Dead Sea Scrolls contain fragments of what seems to be the, an Aramaic original. And, uh, it doesn't, they don't read quite the same way, implying that our Greek, uh, testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs are not just translations, but heavily rewritten to make them Christian. Uh, some would say that about uh, 4th Ezra or 2nd Esdras, 
and uh, especially uh, the opening chapters and the last ones, uh, if I remember this right, the opening couple of chapters are now called Fifth Ezra, just to say that they're not original to the apocalypse, and the closing is called Sixth Ezra. I'm not so sure of that. Uh, The issue there is whether the New Testament sounding material in the beginning of the book is um, original or not. And uh, there are a couple of passages that sound so much like a couple of Q passages. Many will come from the east and the west to dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you, the children, the natural heirs of the kingdom, will find yourself cast out. There's something very close to that, but though it does not sound like it's Uh, That's subjective, I realize, but to me it does not read like a paraphrase of the Gospels. It sounds like just the same notions and uh, that uh, Q has perhaps borrowed from 4th Ezra. Oh boy, I tend to think Q is rather late. So is Mark. Um, let's see, uh, fourth Ezra is very fascinating. It's very much like the book of Revelation. It presents the same problem. How Christian is this book? And, uh, what's the other one you just mentioned? Let me get that back up in front of me. Um, well, the Ascension of Isaiah, right? That is a composite work. It has... An old work, The Martyrdom of Isaiah, which has, uh, I think it's Manasseh, uh, the wicked king, having um, Isaiah killed by being sawn apart alive, which Hebrews 11 mentions. And uh, you really have to know about the ascension of uh, the martyrdom of Isaiah to understand what Hebrews 11 is talking about there. Um, but then there is this uh, ascension or vision of Isaiah tacked onto it, which just does seem overtly to be an early Christian work that has uh, Jesus descending through the various heavens, taking on the substance uh, in each one so that he winds up on earth in a physical body, since the earth is the only completely material level and uh, stuff like that. It's it's very fascinating. And the, it looks to me like the martyrdom of Isaiah is Jewish, the ascension of Isaiah is Christian, and the two books have been put together. Um, so the, you always have to ask, as you sum up quite well, which category one of these works falls into. And I guess where the action is, is the debate over uh, whether these things are minimally but genuinely Christian, as as we sort of usually take the epistle of James to be, uh, since it has very little Jesus in it, or, uh, with, or Jude also, or are these non-Christian works that have been taken over and added to? Just one other thing about Jude in that regard— uh, as a Book of Mormon scholar, he, he's not a Mormon, but he's a, a great scholar of the Book of Mormon, uh, David Persuti, uh, he has shown, I don't know if this was known otherwise, I never heard of it before, he shows that uh, 
a whole lot of the epistle of Jude is based on First Enoch. Now, people have known for many centuries that there's this famous passage, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on the ungodly for all the ungodly deeds they've performed in an ungodly manner. Yeah, that's word for word right out of First Enoch. But what Pursuity shows is that Oh, most of the letter is uh, not quotes, but striking parallels, and you have to assume that it's simply uh, taken over from First Enoch. And then in turn, Second Peter gobbles up virtually the whole epistle of Jude. Uh, it's pretty funny to see the uh, the. Uh, well, I don't know why, why I'm saying that. It's it's very fascinating to see uh, how these things have um, have uh, morphed and percolated uh, over a long period of time. Uh, One last one, Brent in Tennessee says, Since many people in the Mediterranean world believed in two gods, an evil creator god and a version 2.0 good god, isn't it likely that Jesus was created to be the good god, then he was historicized? Could very well be, but I think the only place we find this kind of thing actually attested for Jesus is in uh, Marcionite and Gnostic theology, whereas uh, Jesus' father is the good God, uh, who uh, sort of, um, it's like a device of theodicy. You're trying to get the ultimate God, the good God, off the hook for creating an evil material world. So you say, well, he didn't create it. This lower being, possibly even an evil being, created it. Uh, And uh, and that uh, Jesus came to reveal the good God above him. Um, uh, But... um, uh, Zoroastrianism, of course, had a good god and an evil god long before Christianity, and uh, there are certainly striking similarities between Jesus and the Saoshiant, the benefactor, who would be in the last days born of a virgin from the uh, posthumous surviving seed of the prophet Zoroaster, and uh, the Saoshiant would uh, defeat the wicked and raise the dead. Fascinating. And uh, it's very difficult to date the Zoroastrian scripture, so it's, it's impossible to be sure, but it sure looks like this was a big influence on, on Ju- Judaism and after it Christianity. There were certainly Jews who wanted to claim it, uh, like uh, the ones that said that Zoroaster was actually the same guy as Baruch, the assistant to Jeremiah. I mean, you, you're not going to say that unless you're trying to, uh, you know, work Zoroaster in. You're trying to baptize him as a Jew, so to speak. And uh, there's the Pharisees who uh, I think uh, T.W. Manson was right uh, that uh, their name means the the Parsees or Zoroastrians because they were the heirs of the Persian reconstruction of Judaism along the lines of uh, Zoroastrianism after the Persian exile. 
Well, that's about it for today, I guess. Uh, hopefully, I shall be with you again tomorrow to do some more geekery. Uh, thanks for being with me. And why don't you consider becoming a Patreon patron? I uh, I can always uh, use your help. Uh, thank you for your interest in my efforts. See you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.